So today, as we look in John chapter 5, we're going to look at the entire chapter. Now, how often do we cover an entire chapter in one sermon? It may be an ambitious goal for today. But looking at what is amplified in this scripture, in this chapter, Jesus performs a miracle that everything that he does in this, one, he, he's picking a fight, which he's good at. He's picking a fight with the, with the right people. But it's also to reveal who he is. And it's a self-revelation at a level that if a person doesn't have a heart of faith that is truly in line with God, or at least, at the very least, seeking to be in line with God, okay, that, that God comes first, we come second. If we don't have that mindset, this is a difficult chapter to really grab hold of. Because Jesus doesn't mince words in this because he tells us that he is Jesus who is one with the Father. And that's a concept that's difficult for us. You know, that's, that's, that's getting into Trinitarian theology. That's getting into the very nature and existence of God, which he is different from us. He is not a glorified man and, or, and you know, he's not a human being. He's not like us. He's not part of the creation. He's the creator. And so when Jesus starts talking in eternal truths like this about himself, he's leaving the realm of what we fully understand and experience. He's, he's leaving that behind. And yet it's essential that we understand it. He doesn't make this optional. He doesn't make this, you know, for, for those that are advanced in their spirituality. Here's some fun things for you to chew on. No, he gives us this as a core element of having faith in God that is salvation worthy, we could say, that leads to salvation, that, that opens the door to truth. And in some, in, in some ways, what he tells us in this chapter says, if you can't get this right, you're not going to get anything right. Now, that's tough. Because we, we like to be right in degrees, right? Like in varying degrees, like, well, I, I was kind of right. You know, how many of you remember days of school and you're like, you know, looking at your algebra problem, and you're like, I was mostly right. Why can't I get partial credit? Let me tell you something. God doesn't give partial credit. Not when it comes to this. We have to know who Jesus is. And he will not compromise that one bit for anyone. And so we're going to start in John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 18 to start. And we're going to set the stage here, okay? It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Which, by the way, archaeologists just found recently. So it does exist. In these, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, 
do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, here we see the miracle sets the stage. And we've got to think for a second, what is this miracle? A man who's been an invalid for 38 years is healed at the word of Jesus. He doesn't touch him. He doesn't perform some ritual. He doesn't do it. He just looks at him and says, hey, get up, take your bed, and walk. And he says, wow, my legs work all of a sudden. And he gets up, takes up his bed, and leaves that place. Now, we could talk a whole lot about the, the situation here in this man, but that's, that's for another sermon. The point is, is that Jesus has just performed a miracle that nobody could dismiss. 38 years. That means there are people who've spent their entire lives walking around seeing this same guy in the same place, begging for money, begging for food, trying to get into this pool whenever it would be stirred up, whatever was going on there. They, this is a ritual to them. This is life. Can you imagine being one of the people in that time that you're just minding your business walking and this guy walks past you carrying his bed? And you're like, hold on. What? Aren't you the guy? Yeah, I am. What happened? This man told me to take up my bed and walk. So I did. You just, just did. Yeah. Yeah, my legs started working. You see, Jesus sets the stage with a miracle that nobody can deny, and he does it on purpose at a specific time. And what was that time? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. You see, Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath and again upsets the gatekeepers. And he's upsetting the gatekeepers on purpose. The gatekeepers are mad because he broke their understanding of the Sabbath and openly declared himself to be the Son of God. Now, we look at this in today's world and say, well, what's, I don't really get the big deal. But understand, these gatekeepers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the scribes, they had built an entire system of self-support off of being these gatekeepers. There was power. There was, there was honestly money. There was everything. They had built this up that we are the ones that are in charge here, and you will listen to us. And if you don't, I can ruin your life. 
You see, this isn't just, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. They could drag you into the synagogue and fine you and cause you all kinds of problems. And so these people walked around just looking for something to be wrong because they could flex their muscle on people and force them to follow God. You know, the problem with gatekeepers is like that is that it's their ideas that are being forced on people and not actually God. There's no love, there's no grace, there's, there's none of that present. Jesus knows this, and so he heals this man and intentionally tells him, pick up your bed and walk. Now, why is this? Because the Pharisees had an understanding of work that had become ridiculous. And when I say ridiculous, I mean ridiculous. Because they started, you know, they would have these long discussions, and we've all been a part of this sometimes. What constitutes work? He said you shall work six days and rest on the seventh. So what constitutes work? And they had these long discussions, and so they decided to define everything that they could possibly define. So that even in, in modern day Phariseeism that comes now trying to keep the law, the idea of turning off a light is work. So there are literally people alive today that will unscrew the light bulb in their refrigerator because you open the door, you can't. You'll be sinning if you turn off that light because turning off a light is work. It, it's crazy. And so they had, they had decided to walk further than one mile was work. They had decided to, you know, carry anything beyond what was necessary for like one meal to be work. And so this man carrying his bed, that's all they're worried about. Now I want you to think about this. This 38 years, this man has been an invalid and the first thing they think about is what? Why are you carrying your bed? I can't believe you're carrying. Who told you to do that? Not, hey, how are you walking? You see, that's what legalism does. It blinds us to the work of God. And I mean blinds us. We, we, we will be so offended that somebody dared challenge our own understanding that this glaring work of God that we should be rejoicing in won't even be acknowledged. That's what legalism does. And there's something in this that, that really hit me. Is these people are offended. They're literally offended that Jesus would do this on the Sabbath. Now listen to this. Truth is only offensive when we are invested in Truth is only offensive. If the truth offends you, it means you've invested yourself in a lie somewhere. Now, you may not have done so willingly. You may not have done so consciously. You may not have said, hmm, truth, lie, I think I'll choose the lie. You may not have gone through that process. You may have done it sincerely. You may have just been deceived. And all of us have been there at some point. We get deceived and we think things in one way. Then the truth presents itself and we're like, oh, I got a decision to make. And most of the time, when we are invested in lies, the truth seems offensive. When we become a people of truth, when I become a person of truth, I learn to seek the truth. And as scripture says, the truth starts to become something that's sweet. And it sets you free. It sets you free from the lies. It sets you free from self-righteousness. It sets you free from legalism. Truth is only offensive 
when we are invested in lies. And the worst lies are those that attach themselves to the truth and then twist it so it's no longer recognizable. That is the case in this story. The Sabbath was given for the good of mankind. It was a day of rest from normal work. A day that was set apart for worship, rest, and life. It was to remind people of their creator and to feed their souls and to understand that the daily grind that, that happens the rest of the week should not define you entirely. It's intentionally Changing the pace of life one day a week to say, you know what, I'm not just about work. I'm not just about this. My life also consists in these other pursuits. Now, what is that to be? God even told us in the beginning, that's to be a six to one ratio. Six days you shall do your work. One day you're going to rest. And so that means, yes, there's six days that, man, this is going to feel, this is how it goes. And then we are to disrupt that. One day a week. Intentionally disrupt it. No matter how, what the world is doing. Okay? And so it was to remind people of the creator to feed their souls. And the Pharisees have become so legalistic with the Sabbath that they had defined work so broadly that it was almost impossible for a person to exist on the Sabbath and feed their souls and find what God wanted for them out of the Sabbath. Because it was so legalistic. There were so many landmines now that, that people were just like, okay, I'm, I'm resting. <laughs> and, and it was like this, this chore. It was no longer rest. It was just a different kind of work. And so what were the lies that the Pharisees believed? One, carrying a, sl a small sleeping mat was work. Now let's just cut to the chase here. He's carrying a bed that he can carry under one arm. Is this work? No. They had missed the point of the Sabbath, and instead of the Sabbath bringing life and restoring life, it was simply another weight laid on the shoulders of those who wanted to be faithful. And Jesus countered this understanding at every turn. He allowed his disciples to pluck the grains of head to eat on the Sabbath. And guess what? The gatekeepers were immediately angry. Why? Because they said, well, that's harvesting. Okay, farmers, plucking a few heads of grain and harvesting, is there a difference in the amount of work involved? You see, common sense just goes out the door with, with legalism. Okay? Jesus allowed this. And he's like, yeah, it's not a big deal. Eat. And then... He himself healed on the Sabbath, and he told this man to get up, take his bed, and walk. See, Jesus had a very different understanding of the Sabbath than the legalistic gatekeepers. Jesus challenged their assumptions with questions like, and it, proved, it just shows their hypocrisy. It shows where their heart is. It shows what they believe. And it says, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. They're he gave them the biggest softball answer, like here it is, right in the middle of the plate, hit a home run, say to do good, to save life, that's what's, that is lawful on the Sabbath, and they couldn't answer it because they knew, if I say that, it's going to undo a whole lot of my belief system. Now, isn't it amazing that people can become so locked into a position they completely God. 
And Jesus just says, hey, which is lawful? Do good or evil? Save life or take life? Which one? Go ahead and answer me. And then he heals a person right then on the Sabbath. And guess what? They're mad. He also said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now that's, that's a little bit bolder. He says, I'm Lord of this day. Now, there weren't a whole lot of human beings running around in first century Judaism saying, yeah, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. That typically would get you stoned. You were dead after saying that. But Jesus said it. Okay? And they also didn't understand that God had continued to work after he rested from creation. It wasn't that God rested from all work and never did anything again. And that was their understanding. Oh, well, God had to rest. We got to rest too. He says, look, my father's continued to work. He says, but Jesus answered that my father is working until now and I'm working. When we read that he rested, what was he resting from? Creating. He stopped creating. He didn't stop working. He stopped creating. And so thus, these people were offended at everything Jesus was doing and saying. Because they were so heavily invested in lies that when the truth presented itself, they were left with a choice. I either change what I am doing and saying and believing, or I attack the truth to remove it so that I can be comfortable again. And that's what people will do. We will either accept the truth or we will try to silence the truth. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground on this. And so in this instance, the miracle simply opened the door for the truth to be exposed. The truth of who Jesus is, the truth of the Pharisees' lack of faith, and the truth of salvation. Because what Jesus follows this with teaches us something that is foundational to everything we need to know. And that is that loving the Father means loving the Son. You cannot separate the two. Nobody can say, I love God, and dismiss the words of Jesus. You cannot say, I serve God, and reject Jesus. And Jesus calls the Pharisees out on that because that's the very thing they're trying to do. They are saying, we serve God. We know God. We love God. God is the center of our world. And yet, what are they talking about Jesus? They're rejecting him. They're trying to kill him. And he says, look, this doesn't work. And so in verse 19, he says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he is himself, that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father, this is important, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
Again, in short, you can't claim to love God and not love and follow Jesus. That, that's what he just said. He says, everything I'm doing is from the Father. And the Father has given me the power to judge. And so if you want to honor God, you better honor me. And it's like the Father says, oh, you better pay attention to the one that I've sent. You want to follow me? You better listen to him. And to prove that you better listen and honor to him, I'm giving him the power to judge. So if you want to be in good with me, I'm going to leave it to the judgment of the son whether or not you are. I want to let that sit for a second. You want to be in good with the father. He says, I'm giving that to the decision of the son. You better honor him like you honor me. Father and son, one. Father tells the son what he's doing. The son only does what he sees the father doing. The father submit or doesn't submit. The father uh, gives the, the, the power of judgment to the son so that the son might be honored like the father is. What do you see? You see this kind of reciprocal thing going on right here between the two of them. Jesus submits. The father lifts him up. Father lifts him up, and he gives salvation and life, he says, to whom he will. You see, the truths, the actions, the motives, the spirit of the Father and the Son are completely identical. You cannot separate the two. There is not the will of the Father and the will of the Son because they are completely the same. The father or, or the son has submitted himself to the point that he will do nothing. He says nothing of his own accord. Now, you know what that is? That is the model for all humanity. That is the model for faithfulness. And it's amazing. Jesus says, I don't make decisions for myself. He just said that. He goes, I do not make decisions for myself. I do only what the father tells me. Only. And he says, and the father, and I love this, he says, the father loves me and shows me what he's doing. His self-revelation is based in love. This isn't demanding. This isn't subjugation. This is the father loving the son so that the son can glorify him. See, you will always find love at the end of this. And so listen again to verse 19 and 20. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. What Jesus is saying is that everything he does is in perfect harmony and in perfect sync. There is no space, there is no schism, there is no division between the two. They don't have to have a discussion to come to an agreement what to do. And we can't even do that with ourselves. We'll argue with ourselves over what to do. And here we have the Father and Son in perfect harmony and perfect agreement all the time on everything in which he submits and the Father reveals himself to him. And so the level of submission here is something that's often overlooked in the life and person of Jesus. 
His entire life was about submission to the Father. Every single decision, every single thing he said and did and thought was first given to him by the Father. If the first Adam's failure was an attempt to live independently of God, then the second Adam's success was found in exactly what Jesus said. The son can do nothing of his own accord. But only what he sees the father doing. You see, Jesus did nothing for himself. Think, all through scripture in his entire life, when did he ever serve himself? He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. He never, he didn't commit, he, he didn't perform one miracle that benefited himself. He didn't do one thing that was to his advantage, but did only what achieved the mission for which the Father sent him. And the only way he knew that is because he was submitted to the Father in all things. See, it wasn't that Jesus had all knowledge all the time. Remember, he was a man, so he did not have, he was no longer omniscient. So he had to be guided in his life as the human mind must be. And so it was in submission and prayer and worship and seeing what the father was doing that he responded and did exactly what the father showed him step by step by step. And at the middle of this is love. Don't lose sight of that. He says the father loves the son and shows him what he's doing. Love is the motivating factor in this, okay? At no point was the son forced to obey. And at no point was the father obligated to reveal what he was doing to the son. It was all voluntary. And love is what made it possible. The love the father had for the son, the love the son had for the father, the, it enabled the son to submit, it enabled the, the father to, to reveal himself because love trusts what does it say? Love always trusts. And so the son said, I love the father so much. I trust him implicitly, inherently with everything that I am. And the father says, I love the son so much. I trust him to show him what I'm doing, to reveal myself to him. And love was the driving force of all of it. And so the point of it all is revealed. If you love God... You'll love Jesus. And it, there is no discussion there. If you love the Father, the Father says you better love Jesus. But if you love me, you will, because you'll see me in the Son. You will see the Father in the Son. And that's all you'll see. And, and so then he just lays it out there, verses 22 through 24. He says, for the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now he's telling this to the Pharisees who are insulting him in this moment, who are saying, who gave you the authority? Who do you think you are? And he's like, I'm the Son, and I'm doing the work of my Father. And if you knew my Father, you would know who I am. And they're insulted by it. Why? Because truth is offensive when we've invested ourselves in lies. 
and they are offended. This is truly true. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him. And then he says, this goes further. If you honor the son, what happens? You have eternal life. Because the son can and will grant life to those who come to him in faith. So the father gives him this authority. And how does he use this authority? Is it to judge? No, we're going to get into that. You realize the son, he says it here in a minute, passes that judgment on to another. So God's like, no, I'm not going to judge him. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to judge him either. I'm just going to give him life. But there is a stop in there that says, but you've got to honor the son. You honor the son, he says, oh, I'm going to give you life because I have that authority. I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and I am the son, and God the Father has given me the authority to judge, and with that authority, I choose to give life. That's my role. That's what I'm going to do. With the authority given to me, I will give eternal life. I'm not going to judge, though. I'm just going to give life. And he says he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus lovingly submits wholly to the Father. The Father loves the Son and reveals his actions to him and hands judgment to the Son, which means the Father has given the Son power over the power of mankind's eternal destiny. The son takes that power and uses it not to judge, but to save. And so now listen to what he says in John 5, 45. Do not think I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So Jesus says, oh, no, the accusations aren't coming from me. I'm just here to give life. You honor me. You follow me. I will give you life. I will give you eternal life. You will be saved and judgment will pass you by. But if you really want to talk about judgment, I'm not the one that's going to be judging you. I'm giving that to Moses, which he means is the law. And he says, ironically, that's where you've put your hope is in the law. And you'll be judged by the law. Now, he's saying this to the Pharisees. Now, again, what is the law? Does the law bring righteousness? No. Can the law bring life? No. All the law can do is destroy. And y'all have heard me say it again before, but I'm saying it again because it is the core of the gospel. We are not condemned with God because we fail to believe in Jesus. What did Jesus just say? He says, I don't judge. God's, the Father says, I'm not going to judge. I gave that to the son. And the son says, well, I'm not going to judge you. I'll just give life, but I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to let the law judge you. And what is the law? The law says you shall have no other gods other than, than the Lord. It says do not worship any graven image. Remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. How many of you are doing all right so far? Anyone? You see, if we're going to rely on the law, he says, you think you're righteous? Let me give you the standard of righteousness and see how well you stand up. He says, I'll get you right out of the gate. I just got 10 of them. I don't even need that many laws. I'll just give you 10 that will show you how bad you actually are. He says, hey, don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet which really a lot of scholars believe that in the Ten Commandments, they're really just kind of bookends that you can just look at the two. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. 
When that is broken, what happens? We begin to covet something else. When we don't put God first, we start to covet. And there's number 10 right there sticking on the other end, the bookend, saying, well, if you don't, this is what's going to happen. You're going to covet. And when you covet, what's going to happen? You might steal. You might commit adultery. Once you covet, you might start to dishonor your parents because you want something different. You start to covet. You might work seven days a week instead of six because you need that lifestyle. You, you see, coveting will start to lead to all of these other things that the Ten Commandments tell you not to do. And so it's a loop that there's no getting outside of. And that's what Jesus says is going to judge us. He says, that will be your judge. I love that the father says, no, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to give that to the son. And the son says, no, I'm not going to judge you either. I'm going to give you life. Those who come to me, I will give life. But I'm going to go ahead and just let the law judge. And he tells it to the Pharisees that are like, yes, we are the gatekeepers of the law. We've got this down. They didn't. You see, Jesus offers something entirely new and different than what the Pharisees were offering as far as their brand of righteousness. And we have to recognize what Jesus is offering as the ultimate, final truth on the matter. There will never be any other truth, a new truth, your truth, my truth. Jesus is the truth. And so what Jesus offers is eternal life free from judgment. But it requires we have the love of God within us. It requires we honor the Son just as we honor the Father. It means we honor Jesus Christ as God Almighty. Not just an example of God, not just a messenger of God, but as God himself, God the Son. Co-equal with the Father, we cannot see a difference. And so when we're worshiping Jesus, we're worshiping God. When we are serving Jesus, we're serving God. When we are claiming Jesus, we are claiming God. It is the ultimate end uh, of our worship. The one we are saying. So, listen one more time. John 5, 23 and 24. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We have to understand that to reject Jesus is to reject God. There are a lot of people today that say things like, well, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. I think there are a lot of paths that lead to God. No, there are a lot of paths that lead to hell. And I don't say that to be cute. There are a lot of paths there. There's one path that leads to heaven, and that's through Jesus. And we have to be willing to put him in that place where he is above all, and he is in all, he's through all, the world created by him, for him, and we belong to him. We don't have rights in the kingdom of God. We don't get to assert ourselves with God and tell him, you know, I deserve or anything like that. We bend the knee to him just as Jesus did the, to the Father and say, I'm yours. Whatever my life is, is yours. Now with that, he says what? He'll love us. He'll be with us always to the end of the age. He will forgive us. He will separate us, our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. I mean, it's amazing. But we have to do it his way. And what we find at the end of this chapter is that all truth points to Jesus. There is no actual truth that does not lead us to Jesus Christ. Which means, now some of y'all may 
be somewhat offended by this. Don't, don't run off the rails really fast because I'm not saying that we follow them. But the nuggets of truth that are in, say, Islam, the nuggets of truth that are in Buddhism, the nuggets of truth that are in New Age, you take all of those truths together and, and you, you point them towards you and you're going to find, like, wait, the Bible puts all this together. You see, that's what happens in all of these other things that are out there. There's typically a nugget of truth in there. And what happens is people don't see that it points to Jesus, and so they, they then grab hold of it, run another direction, and now they're out of the will of God. And they're like, but I know this is true. And you're like, yeah, that's true, but it's not the truth. You haven't taken it to its logical conclusion yet, which is the person of Jesus Christ. Which for us as Christians, we should seek that nugget of truth because that's how we talk to those people. We don't have to alienate them. We just find that nugget of truth and then show them, hey, Jesus is the one that really is that person. Jesus is the one that, that really gives inner peace. Jesus is the one who is really going to judge the world. Jesus is the one who is truly the mystery. Jesus is the one that leads us to the, to the paradise. You see, we can take those truths and say, yeah, that's not entirely wrong. There is a nugget of truth in that, but let me show you the whole truth. Because you listen to what Jesus says on this. In John 5, 36 through 47, it says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, what are those works? Healing the blind, healing the lame, raising the dead. <laughs> He's like, pay attention. He's like, I don't know how more obvious this could get. And he's being serious right here. He's like, the works that I'm doing should prove to you who I am. If you just pay attention to it, you'll see that I'm not lying. Verse 37, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice has never been heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not believe and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now that is an insult to a group of Pharisees who have memorized the entire Old Testament. They memorized it. And he's like, but you don't, it's not in you yet. Because if it was, you'd recognize who I am. And here, here it is, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Friends, let me tell you something. This is the scripture. It is the truth. But we don't worship this. We worship Jesus Christ. This teaches us about Jesus. This points us to Jesus. This is the message God gave us to open our eyes to the truth of Jesus. But we don't worship the word. We worship its author. And that's what the Pharisees had fallen into is they thought, yes, I will study. I will pour over these scriptures because the more I have those, the more of God I have. And they equated their intellectual pursuit in the word with faith. And they are two different things. It's why people can be experts in scripture and yet morally bankrupt. Because they have worshipped the word and not the author of the word. They have submitted themselves intellectually to the, the truth of the word, the, the, 
the concept of truth in the word, but not to the truth itself in Jesus. There is another step there when we study the word, and that is called obedience and submission. Just as Jesus submitted to the Father, we have to read scripture and submit to it, to the truth that leads us. And so he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? He tells them they are living in this world and only in this world. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my writings? You see, Jesus just played the card. I mean, he just slammed that thing down right there. If that was a game of dominoes, the, the table just exploded. Because he says, the scriptures talk about me, friend. And if you knew the scriptures and you actually believed them, you'd be rejoicing that I'm standing right in front of you right now. You would be on your knees and on your face worshiping the God that you claim to know. But you don't know me. And he says it because you don't have the love of God in you. You don't know who I am. You see, this whole chapter, Jesus picked this fight intentionally, starting with just violating their understanding of the Sabbath. See how easy it is to get us offended? Hey, pick up your bed and walk. No, that'll do it. And the Pharisees come and knock in in five, four, three, two. There they are. Here they come. Let's do this. You see, anyone who downplays the person and work of Jesus is not walking. Don't let them fool you. Do not, I, I don't care how intelligent they are. I don't care how, how much they, they even quote scripture. If they downplay the person and work of Jesus and do not elevate him to the actual presence of God on earth, God incarnate, to whom everyone on earth will pay homage. It's just a matter of when, not if. The Bible says every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. We either do it now willingly or in judgment one day. But we will all stand before God and bend our knees to Jesus. It will happen. Anyone who disputes any part of that, they're not walking with God. Now, I'm not saying they're irredeemably lost. I'm just saying they are not walking with God. They're not listening to them. They don't have the love of God in them. They, they are outside the kingdom. And it's up to us to tell the truth and help bring people in because that was bring us to today. Too many people think they are okay with God and they aren't. And every one of us needs to check our own heart and say, you know what, am I, am I walking with God? Is Jesus on the throne of my life? Is he truly Lord of lords and King of kings? And do I seek to honor him as such? 
Too many people think they're okay, and they aren't. Jesus is Lord. He is to be worshipped, honored, followed, revered, loved, feared, shared with everyone. We are not to be ashamed to speak his name. We are not to cower in the face of our enemy who, who wants us to be quiet and not talk about Jesus. We are to be bold about the kingdom of God in both our own hearts and in the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is none other besides him. And there is no middle ground. Jesus Christ is the single most important person in your life, whether you know it or not. Whether you know it or not, Jesus Christ is the most important person in your life. Life cannot be about us. It has to be lived in honor of the one who is above all things, who created all things, and for whom all things exist. Otherwise, we become selfish, prideful, and evil. There is no middle ground here. We either bend the knee to Jesus or we are rejecting God. Jesus saw that way and so must we. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this day. And God, I thank you for everyone in here. And Lord Jesus, we come to you, God. We bow our heads to you in reverence, Lord Jesus. You are our king. You are our, our ruler, our Lord. You are Lord of all creation, and we freely and rightly confess that together as your people. God, if there are any here, who, whoever here has not settled that in his or her heart today and given themselves to you, God, I pray you convict them. God, convict them that they would want to come home and to give themselves to you in saving faith. That they would have their sins forgiven, that they would repent and turn away from wandering. And they would come home to you and find rest for their soul. Lord, give us the courage and the boldness to live for you, God. We live in a dark time that's just getting darker. And God, it's not a time for Christians to hide. It's time for us to shine. But God, shine in such a way that you are glorified. That we don't fight as the world fights. We love. We do what's right. We share the gospel. We love and serve each other. We pray, and Lord, we bring down strongholds. I pray you use us do that very thing in our community. God, that we would be known as a people who represent you first. That we would be known as a people of love and a people of spiritual power rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That none of us would be ashamed to speak the name of Jesus in any situation. God, this is our prayer together. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.